Dear church family, please turn with me in the back of your Psalters to page 66. This evening we are going to consider the Lord's Day 32, and the first Lord's Day in the third part of the Catechism dealing with thankfulness. I'd like to read the two questions, questions 86 and 87. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Answer. Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings and that he may be praised by us. And also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Question 87. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means, for the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. This evening, as we come to the third section of the, the Heidelberg Catechism, this, a section that addresses the need for our lives to, to be filled with thanksgiving for what God has done for sinners, saved sinners like ourselves. Thankful for what God has done in delivering from our great misery, sin and miseries. And the authors of our catechism, as they approach and begin Lord's Day 32, begin this third section of the catechism, wisely begin not with dealing with the question of, well, what are good works? What are these good works that we are called to? But they, they begin with the focus on why. What is the basis for our good works? What what is the basis for why we must do them? What good works are will come. Begin, begin to answer that question in the following, in the next Lord's Day. Historically speaking, at the time of the Reformation, the necessity of good works was really not in question. But for, the, for, the Rome, for Rome, good works was an essential part of theology. It was a part of how one could be saved. They could work their way back through their good works, and God would do the rest. So what was at question was the place and the purpose of good works in the life of the Christian. And the scriptures and the reformers, such as Ursinus, who was one of the authors, who said, Good works are the fruits of our regeneration, since they are an expression of our thankfulness to God, evidences of true faith. So this evening we want to, be, to look at what is the basis for our good works and some implications of that basis. And we want to do so as we consider Titus chapter 2, verse 14, in, it, in its broader context. Titus 2, verse 14. Let's read that verse together. The Apostle Paul begins here with who. And so we need to know, well, who is this who that he's referring to? And we need to go back to the previous verse. The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us 
from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. From these words and in connection with the catechism, we see that the people of God are who they are only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who gave himself for sinners. For, for the purpose of redeeming them, of cleansing them, and making them a zealous people. A people who are eager, desirous to live out their thankfulness, good works. So tonight we want to consider a peculiar people created for good works. A redeemed people, a purified people, and a zealous people. As we come to our passage this evening, it's important for us to have an understanding of the context of Titus's ministry and the reasons why Paul was writing this letter, this pastoral letter to Titus. He's writing to a young man who he had sent to the island of Crete. We read in verse 5 of chapter 1, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should set in order the things that are wanting or lacking, and ordain elders in every city, as I have appointed thee. Crete was a, a large island south of mainland Greece. A church that was, and the church that was located on this island seemed to be confronted with two different, two, two main issues or challenges. The first of these issues was that there were false teachers who, who had sought to subvert, who were subverting the truth, seeking, and in the process, seeking to promote themselves among the, the church. And they were doing so through the promotion of Jewish fables, Jewish um, ideologies, thoughts, patterns, and the commandments of men. And you can read that in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 1. He describes, Paul describes these men who were doing this as unruly, vain talkers, deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. But there were also cultural sins that were found within the church on the island of Crete. And Titus was called to address these as well. Verse 12 suggests um, something of what the, these cultural tendencies seem to be in, in and among the Cretans. Paul, quoting one of their own poets or one of prophets, says, The Cretans are always liars evil beasts, slow bellies. This could have the idea that they were, they were habitual liars. They were, their moral values were, were rather low on the level of animals. They were, they were lazy people who loved their food and drink. There was apathy in this church. And Titus was called to come here and teach and rebuke and instruct and ordain elders in the church. These people were buying into the philosophies of this world. They were living according to the standards of, of this world. And as one looked at the church on the island of Crete as a whole or uh, individuals, the question may have been raised do they know? Do they know the grace of God? Have they been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, it's easy to look back at the church on the island of Crete from a distance and to ask these questions about it. But before we begin pointing fingers we need to also step back and examine our own hearts and our own lives. Where do we find ourselves today as a church, as individuals?
do we see in ourselves a people who are no longer our own and that we belong to another? And do we then live in a way that reflects this in a heart of thanksgiving, in a life of thanksgiving for what God has done for such as we are? Titus had the tremendous task to counter false teachers, leaders in the church. And he had to do so by ordaining qualified men that the Lord himself would equip to serve this church. Who would, as Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 1, would be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And they were to do this, Paul says in 1 verse 13, by rebuking sharply. And in 2 verse 1, to speak, to teach the things which become sound doctrine. And they were to do this across the entire church, to all ages within the church. No one was exempt from their instruction. We see this in in verses 2 through 10 as, as Paul calls Titus to ordain elders and to teach, exhort the aged men, the aged women, the young men, the young women, husbands, wives, servants, masters, or in our day, employees and employers. And they were to exhort and teach them as to what it looked like to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly in this present world. And our task as pastors, as your pastors, is no different today. To teach the flock, to teach you what it is to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And Paul does this as he points out practically what this looks like in these various demographics of the church on the island of Crete. Now, Paul's approach in this letter is a little bit different than his epistles. Often in his epistles, he would, he would bring the doctrinal truths in the first half of the book and then, and then look at how those doctrinal truths were to, would impact the, the rest the life in various aspects. You think of the letter to Ephesus and to the Ephesian church, chapters 1 through 3. We have Paul laying out the foundational truths of of the Christian religion. And then chapters 4 through 6, okay, so now what does this mean, look like in your day-to-day life? But herein, as Paul writes to Titus, he he begins chapter 2 with looking at what does godly living look like? But maybe... Maybe someone was thinking, maybe someone was asking, maybe Titus had asked the question, well, on what basis do we do these works? How can we live like this? How can we live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world? Why can we do this? And Paul begins answering this question in verses 11 through 14 and into chapter 3. And he begins verse 11 with these words, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's grace, grace alone, that will cause people to serve and love one another, to live for the Lord in every area of their life. It is, great, it is the grace of God alone that brings salvation, that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts so that we would live soberly, righteously, and ungodly. It is the grace of God that causes us to look forward to that, to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. It is the grace of God alone that 
allows us to be diligent in this world, taking up our callings and tasks for the glory of God, and yet with the other eye, keeping our eye on eternity, looking forward to his coming again. It is the grace of God alone that brings salvation, which alone will be foundational to equip us to live in this present world. And this grace of God alone is only because of the one who came into this world, the one who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, that he might purify unto himself a a peculiar people, zealous for good works or of good works. As Paul comes to the end of verse 13, he can't contain himself as he looks forward to the glorious appearing of his Savior, he cries out with this exclamation, Who gave himself for us? Our Savior. Paul is drawn back to, what, to Christ, to what Christ has done for him and for all the people of God. He's the one who gave himself. So that his people, if you're washed in the blood of Christ, you will be a peculiar people. His peculiar people. Who gave himself for us. Paul draws our attention to the very foundation for who the people of God are. It is Christ and it is Christ alone. The great God and our Savior who gave himself, Jesus the Son of God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, this God, the everlasting God, gave Himself. He gave. It's actually a very common English word and a common word in the Greek for to give. But in the context that Paul uses it here, it's loaded with meaning. Paul loves this word in connection with Christ's finished work. Often he uses it. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.2, he gave himself up for us. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all the people. Jesus Christ gave himself willingly, voluntarily, lay down himself as the selfless sacrifice. His death on the cross was a conscious and willful act that he undertook. He didn't didn't have his life taken from him. He gave it. He was not forced He did not do so out of obligation, but with purpose and with intention on account of his tremendous love for his Father and for all those whom the Father had given him. He gave himself. And who did he do this for? For us. For us. For Titus. For Paul, for the church on the island of Crete, for all who the Father had given to his beloved Son from before the foundations of the world, for us, for people who by nature are sinners, who are ungodly, wicked, lawless, liars, lazy, rebellious sinners. Friend, this is the beauty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That he gave himself so that he could call you into a relationship with himself. So he could call you into a relationship where you would be his peculiar people. A set-apart people. A people who were selected 
to serve him, to love him, to live for him. Not on account of who they were, but on account of who he is, our God. And he calls us into a relationship, a peculiar people. And this peculiar people are a redeemed people, a purified people, a zealous people. This word peculiar is, is, a, is a unique word in the New Testament. It only occurs in this passage. And it has a reference to singularity and uniqueness. And it, and it speaks to a significant cost in procuring or securing them to be this people. Jesus gave himself so that you, dear child of God, can be his peculiar people, his treasured people. It had nothing to do with you or I or me. In due time, Paul tells us Christ died for the ungodly. In the first place, this people is a redeemed people. In giving himself, we're told that Christ redeemed to himself a people. The word redeemed here brings us children to the world of slaves or to the, into, the, into the world of ca- captives, people who had been taken captive or who are made slaves and required to work laboriously for another. And freedom could be obtained if the price was paid for, the redemption price was paid that would allow them and they could obtain their freedom. This word is used throughout the scripture to describe the work of the Lord in setting his people free from the bondage of sin and iniquity, from their wickedness and their lawlessness. But there is a tremendous cost associated with this freedom. Namely, Christ gave himself. He gave his life. He shed his blood so that he could redeem a people from their iniquities. Not just from the sins themselves, but from from the guilt of those sins and from the power of those sins. Christ died so that he could redeem a people. He could set a people free Free from sin, free from the guilt of sin, free from the power of sin, free from the punishment of sin. And there are many pictures of what this looks like throughout the the Old Testament. Children, you can think of the Exodus. The children of Israel were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were required to build these massive structures to to make bricks, and they worked hard. They, they were driven, they were whipped, they were tortured. They, were, they had no rights at all. And when God redeemed them, when God saw them and took compassion on them and came and sent them a deliverer in Moses, they were redeemed from the house of bondage in Egypt. They were freed from those cruel taskmasters. They were free from the whips and the, and the hard labor. They were free from the monotony of captive life. And as a free people, what does, how does the Lord referred, refer to them and call them? Well, he reminds them of what he did for them in Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5. The Lord says through Moses to his people, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure. Unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Israel, as a redeemed people out of the land of Egypt, 
We're called to then live faith-filled lives of obedience to the Lord. And it's in that context that we get the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons the Ten Commandments is in the third part of, of the Catechism as a way for us to live our lives, thankful lives. God's peculiar people are a redeemed people, purchased by the blood of Christ. Friend, have you been redeemed? Have you been set free? Has the blood of Jesus Christ, which he willingly shed, has it redeemed you? Can you say with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. There is, there is no other way to be set free. And as our catechism says, one of the reasons we must still do good's works is, is because Christ has redeemed and delivered us by his blood. It is in the light of redemption and only in the light of redemption and deliverance that good works are even a possibility. For apart from redemption, all of our so-called good works in this life are as what the scriptures refer to as filthy rags, as ugly and as a horrible stench in the sight of God. If you have not been redeemed, are you still trying to earn your way back to God through what you're doing, through a works-related righteousness? Friend, there's redemption only in Christ Jesus. And when he redeems, he brings a people to himself to purify them. Who gave himself that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people. The word purify here has the idea of cleansing or washing. It's a common Old Testament metaphor that is connected with being redeemed from from one's iniquities. Throughout the Old Testament ceremonies, children, as you read the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you will, you will see again and again the need for, for the Israelites to be clean in order to be able to come up into the tabernacle to, to worship. You needed to be clean to enter into the presence of God, to have fellowship with him. It's pointed not only to the need to be redeemed, but it also pointed to the need that we need to be daily cleansed and washed of our sins and iniquities from our evil heart. And the Catechism highlights this need, too, for cleansing, where where we see it referenced because of Christ also who renews us. We need renewal. We need to be made clean. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 connects for us this idea of redemption and cleansing and purification together. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 a minute. In verse 19, we we read, because of the wickedness of the people, because of their sins, because they had shed innocent blood, because they were serving idols, we read in verse 19 that the Lord scattered them. I scattered them among the heathen. They were dispersed through the countries according to their ways, according to their doings. I judged them. They had been sent into captivity whether it was into Assyria or into Babylon, they had been made captive people. 
They had been living in wickedness and sin, and they had brought upon themselves this bondage. But then in verses 21 through 23, we read something about who the Lord our God is, our covenant God, and how he finds reasons within himself. For I had pity for my own holy name, verse 21, which the house of Israel had profaned. He took pity on his name. His name was holy, but it was a name that was connected to these people in finding reasons within himself for his holy namesake, he, be, he keeps covenant. He honors his name and magnifies his name among the heathen by redeeming his people. And we, although we don't read the word redemption in this passage, in verse 24 we, we have the, the idea. Verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen. He redeemed and brought back his people. But he promises to cleanse them from also their filthiness and from their idol worship. And this verse 25, and I will sprinkle clean water upon you. So he not only redeems and takes out of captive land, but he then sprinkles them with clean water that you shall be clean from all your filthiness And from all your idols will I cleanse you. The Lord our God, our Savior, not only redeems, purchases back to himself a people with his blood, but he also purifies and cleanses his people so that they are a peculiar people, a purified people. As long as we are in this world, children of God, we will need that cleansing blood again and again. For we fail him over and over again. We need to be washed and cleansed so that we can approach him and worship him without fear. We're not only justified but we're continually being sanctified, putting off sin as we was referenced this morning as well, and putting on Christ, killing the old man, and living out of the perfect righteousness of Christ, being conformed more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus. He conforms us. He cleanses us. He purifies us so that we will be a peculiar people a set-apart people, to serve him and to love him and to live for him as a zealous people. But we'll look at that after, our, after we sing from Psalter 140.
gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Christ gave himself, in the first place, to redeem to himself a people from their iniquities. To purify, in the second place, to purify unto himself a peculiar people. A people who would be, a people who are zealous for good works. The Lord Jesus does not save a people to just then sit on the sidelines, as it were, to watch and wait for glory. No. He redeems and purifies to himself a people so that they will be zealous for good works. Zealous here has the idea of being desirous for or eager for, enthusiastic about, committed to something. And Paul says that those whom Christ has redeemed and has purified to himself will be a people who are eager to live for him, eager to serve him, eager to love him. Not just with their minds, but with heartfelt words and actions. There will be desire and a delight to do good works in response to what Jesus has done for them for sinners like us. And Paul expresses this elsewhere in, in, in various ways. Think of Romans 12:1, where he says, It is our reasonable service to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about it in the sense of he calls us to walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us. And has given himself, which was a sweet-smelling savor unto God. By implication, Paul is saying, is your life a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord in return for what he has done for one like you? No, our works, being zealous and desirous for goods are Good works is not going to be meritorious in any sense of the word, but it is done out of pure thankfulness. One commentator puts it like this, such a people will have a consuming desire to honor our great God and Savior for his glorious work of redemption. Our works, our good works, are the natural response to his work. Zeal for him becomes our daily desire, having been prepared by him for this kind of life. Grace teaches us who the Lord is. Grace empowers us to serve him as Lord. And then when we consider if, if there's a lack of good works, if there's a lack of desire... What does that say about our hearts? If you have no desire for good works, either you have never been redeemed, you know nothing of his cleansing power, you don't know him, for you have not been made one of his peculiar people. Or you are backslidden and living in a bad, a terrible way. And the lack of good works, the lack of desire for them speaks volumes about your current spiritual condition. For our Lord Jesus has said, by their fruits you will know them. This is not meant to discourage those who, who, as they look at themselves, don't see in themselves a, the desire for good works like they would like to see. Oh, for more desire, or for 
greater longing for them. And maybe you are discouraged by the smallness of your desires. And yet, can, can you not say that there is, there is a desire, though? Maybe you cry with the Apostle Paul, as our brother Darrell um, referenced this morning from Romans 7. For the good that I would not, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. O oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, if you have been redeemed, if you have been purified, it means you've been set apart as God's peculiar people, a people who will be zealous, eager, desirous for good works. But why does Christ create a zealous people? Why does he create a zealous people for good works? Ultimately, it's for his glory and his honor. It's to magnify his beautiful, powerful name that saves sinners. But our catechism Our catechism highlights three reasons at the end of question 86. First, our good works, being zealous for them, testifies by the whole, by them we testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings and that we might praise him. By the whole of our conducts, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we testify to the wonder of his redeeming and purifying grace. We testify that Jesus is mine and I am his. We testify to the fact and the reality that I am willing to die to myself. I'm willing to deny my rights to live sacrificially for the Lord through gracious serving of others. But secondly, the the catechism says good works are necessary and called for because this is by the one of the means that the Lord, through the work of the Spirit, encourages and assures his people of their faith, of the presence of faith in the finished work of Christ. And our text indicates this as well. The people of God will be a zealous and and eager for good works. And this is only the result of being in Christ, being redeemed by him, by being purified unto himself. The desire for good works, to do good works, is not a natural desire. By nature, we don't desire to deny ourselves. By nature, we, we don't desire to live in obedience to the Lord's commands and to serve others. Or maybe we do it. The question is, what are the motives and the intentions for behind what we do when we're apart from Christ? By nature, we'd rather serve ourselves. We'd rather live according to our own set of standards. And therefore, the catechism says, everyone may be assured in himself of this faith by the fruits thereof. But the opposite can also be said, as question 87 points out, if you are continuing in and living in unrepentant sin, if you are continuing to live with ungrateful lives, then you cannot, as the catechism quoting the scripture, inherit the kingdom of God. 
the redeeming and the purifying work of Christ in one's life must and will by necessity transform your life into one that desires to live out with true thankfulness for what he has done for you. But the third reason why Christ calls us to be zealous and makes us a zealous people for good works is so that by our godly conversation, the Catechism says, by our conversation there, I think we can expand to, by our godly lives and conversations, we may gain others to Christ. Sacrificial living where we love God above all and our neighbors as ourselves, goes against the grain of this world's thinking. And it's attractive, it's winsome, it's Christ-honoring. And when combined with the gospel message, a message that is powerful to save, it, particularly when we look to the great God, to our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself, we can expect his blessing as we witness, as we, as we do evangelism, as we reach out to our children, to our neighbors, to the community around us. Friend, are you walking in this world as an example, a Christ-like example, zealous for good works? Are you a light on a hill that displays the gospel message to all around you? Are you praying that your words, as you speak them, into hearts and lives, whether it's your children, your employees, your employers, your neighbors, others who you meet along the way, are you praying that they will be blessed for their salvation so that they too will be made a peculiar people? Church family, are you redeemed from all iniquity? Are you purified unto Christ? If you are, and you will be zealous, Paul says, you will be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Well, maybe not to the extent that you desire. But there will be a desire and there will be a delight to testify with the whole of your conduct what he has done for your soul. There will be a desire to praise him and to thank him, not just in words, but in life. Are you zealous for good works? Are you a redeemed people, a purified people, a zealous people? Amen. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for thy redeeming power, thy cleansing power, the transforming power to take dead sinners and make them alive, zealous, eager, enthusiastic for good works. Not to earn salvation, not to make ourselves more righteous, but out of thankfulness for what thou hast done. Lord, if we're not if we're not zealous for good works, if we're, if we're mediocre, if we lack, if we're stagnant, if we actually don't even want them, we pray transform us by thy redeeming grace and thy purifying mercies. Lord, do go before us in this day, in this week. 
And we pray that we would live grace-filled lives depending on the trusting, the loving, the and Lord, go, go before us in, in every way. We left up little Jameson again, Lord. He's had various tests throughout the day. We pray you grant the doctors wisdom and, and the medical staff wisdom as they determine what to, how to help this, this little boy. Be with Justin and Holly as well. We pray this in the sovereign name of Jesus Christ. Amen.